Namaste and good evening to all of you. I'm happy to be again in the Shiva Hall here. And um, in the beginning of this new season, I want to address a few interesting subjects, and your suggestions are also very welcome in uh, addressing what subjects would you like to hear me talking about in the satsangs in this season. Until uh, we get to such suggestions, remember that we are already in a program. I've started two seasons ago making a long commentary to the Gospel of Luke from the Bible in an attempt to explain to the students of Agama the message of Jesus. How do we understand some of the things of Jesus from the standpoint of yoga? When Jesus speaks like this or like that, what chakra does he refer to? What level of consciousness? What law of the universe? Sometimes we see Jesus speaking as a bhakti yogi, as a lot of um, devotion and surrender in what he says. Sometimes, without no stopping being a bhakti yogi, probably ever, Jesus, we see him speaking very much like a karma yogi. He is talking about how to act in this life, how to act in this universe in a way which is aligned with the divine consciousness. We uh, see Jesus, why not, giving us elements of jnana, of the knowledge of the universe, of the knowledge of the human being. We see Jesus giving examples of the power of the mind, when he says you should pray to God and then try to feel, try to act as if your prayer had been fulfilled already, which is a typical element of the self-suggestion, self-hypnosis, programming of the mind, and therefore things depending or related to Ajna Chakra. So, of course, uh, we can always expect that a teaching as profound, as, as complex as that one of Jesus is touching many aspects from yoga. And because Jesus has such a powerful reputation, even among the yogis from India and elsewhere, and because of many other causes which have been commented in previous satsangs, um, it has been decided, I had, been, I had decided a couple of seasons ago, that I will speak about the Gospel of Luke, and it's probably the longest of the four Gospels, and uh, therefore it takes a long time to go uh, thoroughly, to go into details, into what Jesus has said and done, and to understand it. Realize, I'm not uh, making here a commentary of the Bible. What we are doing here is trying to learn something practical from the standpoint of the yogis. And uh, Jesus is a perennial source of interest in this way. Uh, some of the styles I already commented on that, and I'm not going back there, but some of the styles of style of Jesus is completely inimitable 
and it's completely unique in his own way and that's why we are getting inspired in a very particular way. Some, there have been some of the yogis who have been more compromising, more inclusive. We can see that Jesus is not always very inclusive and he wants some people out and he wants some people in. He wants to make a clear discrimination. And uh, there are so many other characteristics which make uh, Jesus, this association between the message of Jesus and what we learn from the great yogis, very, very powerful. So uh, I will resume from where we ended. We... When we stopped the previous season, we we're somewhere in the 10th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And um, Jesus has been on the rough side a little bit because he speaks about people not understanding, not living up to the requirement of the times. You maybe remember from this, from previous season, when he says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Oh, woe to you, Bethsaida! These are cities, areas from the Palestine of those days, where he is very um, annoyed to the fact that divine miracles have been performed. People have been called to stand up spiritually, and they did not. They remained spiritually opaque. And uh, he concludes by telling to people something very frightening in a way because he tells them, he tells to his own disciples, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see, for I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. This is where we start because then he continues with a parable of the Good Samaritan, which is a worldwide uh, referred parable. But remember these last words from where he starts, because Jesus is going there accompanying his words with very powerful action. Not only his words are coming with authority, from a place where he is. But as you know, Jesus is one of the spiritual people that performed many, many major paranormal, supernatural, miraculous deeds that impressed people or that were meant to convince people. And he's telling very clearly, he is giving the sign, he says, I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you saw, but they did not see it. And to hear what you hear, but they did not hear it. Kings and prophets wanted to see. They prophesied. They preached the paths of righteousness and the path of spirituality, and they did not see all those amazing things. Which means they had to go on pure faith. They had to go on credit. Because you know from yoga, from the lecture on detachment, especially on aparigraha, 
and others that one of the divine laws is precisely this detachment in which the divine is not trying to convince you of anything. Ultimately, you cannot escape from the divine. If you are an atheist, you will sooner or later see if that was the case or not. If you have been turning against one or another aspect of religion, you will taste the outcome of your choices. Everybody belongs to God. You cannot go anywhere in this universe where there is no presence of divinity. Even the hell still belongs to God, ultimately. Even when you are in hell, one of the six lokas, as the Tibetan yogis define it, the hells, the infernos, they still belong to the Mahakala, they still belong to the wheel of creation. They are not separate. The fact that some people are in a comfortable place and some people are not, makes no difference. They are not more or less into God. We tend to believe in a very erroneous way that those who are in paradise, they are more with God than those who are in hell. Because those who are in paradise enjoy cosmic consciousness or some levels of ecstasy. And the ones who are in hell, they are in ignorance, darkness, separation and agony. But the truth is that there is no place in this universe where God is not there. Exactly like Guru Nanak when they took him to Mecca and they tried to convert him to Islam. And they said, well, you shouldn't keep your toes, your feet pointing to the Mecca because it's uh, disrespectful. And he said, why? Because they said, because Mecca is where God is, where Allah lives. And then he said, then please, respectfully, you take my feet and point them in any direction where Allah is not. And it's like, it's absurd to say that God is more in one place than in another when we're talking about a cosmic consciousness that is infinite, omnipresent, and pervades every detail of reality. And that's why, according to this cosmic consciousness, the you would say, yeah, but I have to be convinced, you know, why we human beings cannot see it clearly. So we make a 101% firm choice, no hesitation, no standing back, no, no doubts, no, like we go 110% onto it. Still, you don't do it. Still, you don't do it. Remember that Jesus himself on the cross he lamented by saying, my God, my God, why have you left me? Which, of course, doesn't mean that God had left him, because three days later, two days later, he resurrected, he raised in glory, he raised in light. So it's not that God had left him, but the illusion is so powerful that even one like Jesus, if he wants to subject himself to the illusion, um then it gives the appearance that, well, but maybe it's not quite like that. Maybe I didn't understand it correctly. Maybe I didn't get the message correctly. Why does the divine consciousness allow that to happen? You have been told that in the lecture in the first level on Aparigraha and a few others, because that is the essential condition of freedom. If the divine consciousness is squashing you with its presence, then you are not free 
you are afraid. It's obvious. Big brother puts his hand on your shoulder and he says, hey, I'm here. Then how can you have the choice of ignoring? How have you have the choice of forgetting? People say, I wish God with, is, was with me all the time. But then God would be big brother. And that's possible only at the time where you are full of love. Where there is no more deal. There is nothing to gain and nothing to lose. Only then. But as long as there is a struggle where I'm struggling with my limitations. It's like, you know, somebody It's exactly like the abusive parent who comes and says, You went to bed tonight and you didn't do your prayers. No, and somebody who is a little bit uh, infiltrated by the demon would say, fuck the prayers, you know, screw I, I don't care even about God, I'm so tired. Right? You can't say that, but people do it often. How many of you, if you are religious or spiritual people, how many of you have not ignored one, two, three, ten, three hundred religious rules and regulations in a day sometimes and so simply because you're pissed off simply because you're grumpy simply because you're tired simply because you're in a rush and you say hey the heck with it god will forgive me or whatever if he doesn't forgive me see you in hell and that's it you know it's like the human being has the right to be religiously uh, negligent and uh, you know it's not the best attitude we are impressed that people like Milarepa or others, they come to a point where their alignment was almost like 100%. They lived in a constant state of grace. But, you know, you, you never know. You know, I heard so many stories about Shivananda and Aurobindo and the likes of them that I realized that even great gurus and even great people and so on, they're not always, always, always 110%. Of course, these people, they could compensate, you know, like if today I didn't brush my teeth, tomorrow I brush them twice, you know, to compensate to something. So if I have been religiously negligent because it's full moon and I'm a little bit emotionally screwed, you know, then tomorrow I will be, I will fast more hours, I will do more of this, I will do double time of meditation, I will do, you know, because I have a conscience, and this conscience is telling me, do this, behave like this, this and that. So, um, <clears throat> what I'm trying to say here is that Nobody acts perfectly, perhaps like Jesus or other things. You know, there will be a few people who have aligned themselves that even in the daily life, everything is like a dream, like perfection, like this. For the others, you know, you catch uh, whatever Swami Shivananda drinking a Coca-Cola, and then you say, is this a real yogi? Yes, yes. In Kali Yuga, Swami Shivananda is still a real yogi, you know. Maybe in Satya Yuga there existed some yogis who lived 24 second every 24 7 every second and so on in a splendid attunement second by second or something you know for Kali Yuga for 1950 Swami Shivananda is good enough for the 20th century he is good enough although he doesn't do this or he was not perfect at that and in the same way uh, therefore, the human being is not 
tyrannized, is not tyrannized by God. God is not a tyrant. God is not, you know, it's there, but if you want for five minutes to kind of forget and be negligent, and then tomorrow to come back and say, sorry, yesterday I was a bit rude and so on, you know, whatever kind of relationship you have with this cosmic consciousness of a lover, of a devotee, of a child, of the different attitudes of from bhakti yoga, whatever attitude you have, it's okay. And in these conditions, freedom is the most important thing. Because if you don't have the freedom, you are a slave and you will never become a god, a deity, an enlightened being, an arhat, a Buddha, a saint, a cosmic consciousness. To have a cosmic consciousness, you need to have that difficult 51%. You need to have that slowly, slowly, even walking on the edge of the disaster, you have made the right choices. And sometimes you made some shitty choices and then you came back to your senses and you, you know, many people fail spiritual tests. We see, you know, in Agama we have very good examples with people having passed or failed spiritual tests. No, it's, it doesn't mean that their soul is lost forever. It's the law of the universe. I don't think there is any soul in this universe who can say in my personal history in the last one million years, I always passed all the spiritual tests brilliantly and I didn't flunk anything and I was always, always making the right choice. We do the wrong choices and the cosmic consciousness has to allow us to do the wrong choices. This is the most difficult thing to understand because people who uh, believe that there might exist a cosmic consciousness, expect this cosmic consciousness to be like they are, which means to be attached, to be selfish, to have immediate goals, goals which are right there, right in front of your nose. While the cosmic consciousness has eternity goals, if they cannot be understood by the human mind most of the time, and this ultimate consciousness acts in a way which is for our own growth. Exactly as we have a proverb which says, an oak tree does not grow in the shadow of another oak tree. Like every oak tree needs space for the crown. There are large trees with a big crown, strong, and there needs to be at least 10, 12 meters between two oak trees so that they have the space to unfold their crown and their branches. So if an oak tree is born in the shadow of another oak tree, it will sooner or later wither and die. It's not the right conditions for it to propagate, to grow. Exactly in the same way, you cannot grow in the shadow of God. You cannot develop if you are tyrannized and patronized, and you, because then you are just a slave. You are afraid, you see a benefit. Ah, I do like this because then God will... Uh, give me uh, all the good things. You know, then as Jesus says, you are a merchant, you are making a business with God. No, you have to go beyond the fear and you have to go beyond the interest. And the only thing which is beyond the fear and beyond the interest is level number three, which Jesus defines as love. He simply says you have to be with God simply because you love God. And there is no discussion. Whatever God does to you, like I was joking the other day in the Q&A about Job, the man from the Bible who was made poor and sick and lost everything, you know. 
Job had love. He really loved God. And whatever the universe gave him, Job never lost his love and his devotion. Because he was with God, not because he had an interest. If he would have had an interest, he would say, come on, you took my children, you took my wife, you took my wealth, you took my dignity, you took my reputation, and now in the last minute you took my health as well. It's like, I, you know, I, I hope to get something from you, but now you took everything, you know. Like I'm not getting any. In the end, it was a bad deal. Whoever is a merchant and undergoes the test of Job loses, will dump that test because you will not resist to such a terrible test because you thought you are getting a benefit. You thought you are getting some deal from the divine and the divine can take away all the deal from you just to see if you still stay. And then the only only one who stays is the one that has love. Love is eternally enduring long-bearing, when everything is lost, love still goes on absurdly, irrationally. You know, it just goes on because it's love, and that's the nature of it. That's the nature of the divine consciousness, and that's the nature of freedom. And that's why Jesus is very clear by saying, there have been kings and prophets who have not seen one like me, Jesus, doing, walking on water and raising Lazarus from his tomb and so on. Imagine how much would King David or Moses or others and others, how much would they have gotten if they would have seen Jesus for just a couple of hours, Jean would have seen Jesus in action. It's like, oh my God, you know, I have finally seen, you know, I know I'm not crazy. I know that my love and my surrender and everything was justified. Everybody wants that. You, I, we all want to see Jesus. We all want to see the king of the world from Shambhala visiting us for five minutes. We all want to see, I don't know who, Milarepa flying by the Shiva hall and giving us a good evening salutation or something. We all want. Why? Because we all want, because it confirms We are living all with doubts, with worries, with am I going to do it? Is this true? Is this the right path? Is this that? Is that? And Jesus tells them to the apostles. That's why the apostles were fishermen. A couple of them knew how to read and write. Most of them were illiterate people doing low type of jobs and so on. And suddenly these 12 people, they changed the world. They changed the world. All the Western culture of Europe and North America and so on is most of it derived from the activity of these 12 people. These 12 people turned the tide. And how did they become so intense? They became so intense because they have seen what even King David had not seen in his time. They had seen God in a body acting and doing amazing things. So it was a privilege. It was a privilege. Thomas pushed it to the point where after Jesus was crucified, he wanted to see the wounds in his arms and in his chest and so on, because he still could not believe that this is the same man who got crucified. Maybe it's his twin brother or something. Maybe it's somebody who looks like him or something. It's like it's too much to believe. 
And Jesus told him, Blessed are you, Thomas, because you saw and you believed. But more blessed are those who, unlike you, they haven't seen it, and still they did believe it. So this is where Jesus is starting from. He is trying to show to people that it's a priv- it was a privileged time, it was a privileged message, and he continues by showing them that he is the law, he is the presence of God, and that whatever they had until that time, it was just props. All the law was props, but now the law was sitting in front of them and eating with them and speaking with them. He was the law. He was the creator of that law. And therefore the law is just something etched in stone and written in books. While he was giving the life meaning to these things. And says this parable. On one occasion an expert in the law, in this law, which can become very, very... I have spoken sometimes not long time ago with some Christian sect people from the Adventists and so My goodness, you know, they could quote tons from the Bible and paragraphs and this and that and so on. And they were completely unreasonable. Completely unreasonable. Like they did not respond to common sense. The only thing they responded to was some quotes from the Bible. So in the same way, that's the same story. This expert of the law is one of those persons. Now he's testing Jesus who is the law himself, the author of the law. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Which is really the quest. Each and every one of you, either you know it or not, are here for eternal life. That's what every soul is looking for. If you don't reach eternal life, and you die in an ignorant way, and after death you spend 300 years in the astral world, and then you get incarnated again, and hopefully you have a good karma, so you get a good incarnation, and you make one, two more steps forward, and this life, or next life, or in five lives from now, or in a million years from now, you reach, you reach this eternal life, that's a different story. No, we cannot decide immediately on these things. Of course, you can say, I can decide because I can bury myself into a room and do 14 hours of meditation and yoga every day and then let's see who will stop me from reaching it in this lifetime, in this body. So in a certain way, we can control it. We have been given a leverage, but otherwise, most people shrug their shoulders. So it's a point to the fact that we look for eternal life. The yogis have called eternal life moksha or mukti, liberation. That you are free from karma and you are free to reincarnate again if you don't want. The Buddhists have called it enlightenment, nirvana. That you reach a state of bliss, nirvana, eternal, or that you reach a state of pure knowledge, of eternal knowledge, enlightenment, buddha, buddhi, buddha, the enlightened one. And other traditions call it in another way. Here, of course, in Christianity and others, it's called salvation, perfection, others and others. We're not going now to uh, analyze those because I've spoken multiple times about this. But fact is that every soul is looking to the light in the end of the tunnel. That's what motivates us, the light in the end of the tunnel. 
whatever you call that light in the end of the tunnel, that's what everybody goes for it. The graduation, the top of the mountain, the perfection. That's the goal of the soul at this stage of evolution. So this man is asking him clearly, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I remember once I saw a recording of a dialogue between some Christian Orthodox monks in Eastern Europe, in Romania, and uh, they were arguing if Jesus would come now to you here in the church and so on, and uh, what would you ask him? And one said, uh, where have you been between 12 years and 30 years when the history is not written about you? And this and that. And the one who was most spiritually developed of them, he denied. He said, no, none of those questions is important. The only important question that you can ask the Lord is, what should I do now? Like, what should I do? That's really the only thing which matters. Tell me what to do and I will do it, or at least I will try to do it. That's all. Because the rest, if Jesus was in Egypt, or if he was in India, or if he was like, why is that really important? What, what does that change for you here tonight, today? It doesn't change anything. The only thing which matters is God tell me what to do today. Now, because I have read the Yoga Sutra, but Yoga Sutra is a text written 2,000 years ago. I need maybe a reinforcement of that today, here. So, and so he's asking a real beautiful question. He's asking in a certain way the question. I, like everybody else, want to inherit eternal life. What should I do? What is written in the law? He replied. How do you read it? So Jesus is speaking in his language. He says, okay, no, I'm not going to tell it to you in my words. I'm going to, you are an expert of the law. You are testing me. You are expecting me to see if I know what we are talking about. Of course, Jesus knew the law profoundly because he was the spirit of the law. You know? And he says, what is written in the law? How do you read the law? The Jewish law, the laws of Moses. And he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. He quotes the vertical part of the cross, love God, the individual loving God, and love the creation, love the world, love your neighbor in this case. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. Like Jesus says, you know, I, the truth has been spoken. I am giving uh, practical details in the life of everybody, but it's like, I know what, what can you say more? then love God with all your heart and with all your soul and love your neighbor like it's yourself. There's nothing else to say, you know. It's like the truth has been said. I can only walk on water and encourage you, please do, the law is right, please apply this. No, like I can reinforce it and tell you, trust, trust, trust in this. It's not just dead letters in a book. It's the real deal. No? So... But he, the scribe, the scholar, he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Because the Jewish society, in spite of these beautiful ideals, they had this problem that they were a very segregated society. The Jews considered themselves the chosen ones and the pure ones in that time. 
and uh, they considered that everybody else, including this is the parable of the Samaritan. The Samaritan were one of the Gentiles, the different tribes who lived around there in the area of Palestine. The others were stupid, ignorant, they had not found God. Uh, of course, one of the reasons which are given today by experts in history of religions, by anthropologists and others, is that the Jews were the only nation in that part of the world, and as far as we know in the Western culture, that were monotheistic. They had one God and no other deities, divinities, and there was directly God, the directly Jehovah, directly the one. No? And to defend this, see people, people were freed, the Jews were freed from Egypt by some major miracles apparently done under Moses. And then Moses left them for 40 days. I'm going on the mountain to meet with God to see what next. 40 days. And in 40 days of boredom, those guys down there, they had built a golden calf and they were worshipping it. How easy it is for people from a monotheistic religion to start worshipping idols and to say God is too abstract, too far away, too, we cannot understand it, we prefer a golden calf. You know, we prefer a little spirit like, hey, Jupiter and the sun, you can see them. So let's worship Jupiter. Let's worship the sun. Let's worship, you know, Venus or some, because these ones, you can see them. These are the planetary gods. They are lower. They are closer to us. But when you go to something so far up in the level of the planes of the universe, it's like everybody says, yeah, yeah, but it's lip service because they don't feel it. They don't see it. They don't really, in the, it's, more, it's more a sort of a polite, if Moses said so, then okay, we believe because Moses split the waters and so on. But kind of, uh, we don't really feel it. We don't really see it. So what's the, no? And as soon as Moses disappeared, imagine a few days later, they were building a calf, an idol. No? So that's why, of course, the Jewish tradition was right in this way. Because Moses and the other prophets, they told them, be careful because you are on the edge of coming back. You are on the edge of falling back. This is something which is happening today a lot. Look at the religion which Europeans, North Americans, South Americans and others have. They had received some monotheistic or monistic things in the path of Buddha in the path of Krishna, in the path of Shiva, in the path of Jesus, in such paths. No? And today, if you go in America and Europe, many people are just worshipping spirits. Many people had converted to shamanism, they converted to Wicca, to Celtic rituals, they just worship all sorts of plants in the Amazon or some spirits or something, you know. It's like, how can you compare these things to Jesus? to Jehovah, to the Shiva consciousness. To, but uh, they are much closer. It's much closer. No? And that's why there is always, always a risk that because the divine consciousness is very detached and doesn't give you any proof, just to keep you on your toes, just to keep you 50-50, in a spiritual test which will finally develop your love and your freedom, just because of that, it's very easy sometimes to lower your guard 
and to say, I remember I've seen this American one stand-up comedian, Carlin, George Carlin or whatever. He has a funny clip, you know, where he says, you worship God, this, 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 you know. Like, he says, I could, for example, worship the sun. Because he says, I can see the sun. Like, yes, the sun you can see, God you cannot see. No? It's more easy to worship the sun. The sun is a deity which is present 12 hours every day in your life one way or another. And is the one which gives us light and life and everything. So why not worship the sun? Because it's very difficult to lose faith in the sun. Because the sun is there. But then when you go to an invisible God, then that challenges your faith. That challenges, you know, like there is a cosmic consciousness compared to which, try to think how small the sun, our sun, is compared just to this galaxy. How small this galaxy is compared to all the galactic clusters and all the magnificent and enormous things which astronomy is describing today. Like the universe is infinitely bigger than our sun. And the sun is infinitely bigger than what we conceive as human beings. No? So that's the ratio. The sun as a deity compared with the cosmic consciousness which is including all the manifestation, the sun is like a grain of sand. That's why Shiva is called Deva Deva, Mahadeva. He is the Deva of the Devas. The sun is a Deva and Shiva is Deva Deva. It to, compared to the sun, Shiva is like the sun is compared to us human beings. It's another level more above that, you know? And that's why uh, it's easy. There is this danger to revert to polytheism, to idol worship, to shamanistic and animistic cults, because here the results are quick and visible. If I can have some spirits that can bring me rain, and I just have to kill a chicken and pray, or a, an ox or something, and then there will be rain for my village, and the crops will go okay, I believe in my religion. Because every time when I do that ritual, and I slaughter an ox or a goat, or whatever I slaughter, I get rain. It's easy to have faith when you have this mechanism and you've done it every year, several times per year. No? But that is, so that is an inferior level of religion. In anthropology, in the history of religion, everybody can tell you that this monism or monotheism, first of all, and then upgrading it to monism, to the non-dualist, these are the highest levels of conceiving reality. These are the highest forms of consciousness. So, in the Jewish environment, Moses had given them these Manipuristic laws. If a woman is Jewish and she believes in Jehovah, and then she gets fucked by a Samaritan man, and she worships his lingam, because for her that man is like God in her life, and if this man is worshipping uh, Astarte, or I don't know which Phoenician or Middle Eastern deity, then the woman will also participate in the worship of Astarte. It's very seldom that the woman will say, no, no, I'm Jewish. Yes, I love you. You are my husband, but I will not, you know. It's not. They, they contaminate each other. 
And it's very easy to get contaminated by an inferior thing rather than by a superior thing. And that's why the Jews were told that nobody is your neighbor. All the other people were classified by the very impolite name of Goim. They are Goy, you know, they, they don't believe. They are exactly like the Muslims call them today non-believers, unfaithful. It's the Muslims and the rest of the world. For the Jews, it was the same. It was the Jews who are chosen and holy because they have Jehovah and the rest of the world who is worshipping Astarte and God knows what other bizarre things they have there. And it's like we got out of this and we don't want to get back to this. And socially, they knew that if there is too much rubbing of the shoulders, if there is too much friendship, it's a, there will be contamination. There will be cross fertilization of those. So the Jews had, and some still live by this extremely ghetto rules, that you don't rub shoulders with anybody, you know, because everybody else is polluted, and you are the ones who are having the pure monotheistic religion, God, the one, the Deva, Deva, the Deva of the Devas, the real thing. So because of this, this was a very bitter, it still is, of course, uh, it was a very bitter thing, and you find that with the Brahmins from India, and with others and others in many parts of the world, and as I said, with the Muslims today and others, who don't want to mingle with other religions or other people, they are very prickly about this. They are very sour about this. They know this is one of the ultimate offenses because they know that together with this uh, compromise, you lose your uh, the purity of your religion. Uh, in, a, in certain ideological ways, there, you cannot make compromises. There are no compromises. And look at Jesus. Although Jesus is opening the gates of the heart so much, Jesus is not accepting any compromise to what he is bringing to the world. You know, it's his way or no way. No? So that's why uh, this question is, was very pertinent because this man is asking, who is my neighbor? Because being a Jew and an expert in the law, a fundamentalistic Jew, you can say, for him, everybody else, especially in that area, everybody else were goim. And, you know, like later, after the time of Jesus, when the Jews were living in very hard times, they developed a very warlike, Manipura-like attitude with this going like, hey, you have to survive in a world which is made of your enemies. And in this world which is made of your enemies, you know, it's like you are not allowed to steal money from one of your brother or sister Jews. But from the other guys, they are goim. They don't matter. You know, they almost treated the other religions like half human beings, like half human, you know. You can abuse them a little bit because it doesn't matter so much. They are not part of the chosen community. Today, that's considered politically incorrect and the form of racism and others. And many religions have this racism. For the Christians, if you were not a Christian, you were a slave. You had to be enslaved and dominated. Only when you converted to Christianity, suddenly you became an acceptable citizen one way or another, you know. So uh, every religion is very jealous on its own thing and tries to 
you know, doesn't, doesn't take any diversity there. So here the problem was this, that the problem is not to love God, but the problem is the karma yoga, the interfacing with the world. You love your neighbor, what does it mean? No, I as a Jew, I'm surrounded by 50 different nationalities around here in the Middle East. Who is my neighbor? Like, am I supposed, now you, Jesus, Moses told me to stay with my brothers and sisters. And now you are telling me to open my arms to everybody? Like, that becomes, you know, dangerous. Actually, from the standpoint of Jesus, it was not dangerous because Jesus trusted the heart. He said, on Manipura, you need to build walls around you. Like what did Japan do? Japan in the 16th century discovered Europe. The Spanish, the Por Por Portuguese and others, they came to Japan. And Japan noticed immediately that they started converting the peasants from the countryside to Catholicism. And these peasants were not respecting the feudal lords. They were not respecting the Japanese society because they respected more the church the authorities, you know, their heart was somewhere else. And then uh, the Japanese authorities, they have been very tough on the Christians. They didn't like this Anahata to come to Japan. And the ultimate thing was that when Ieyasu Togukawa became the first shogun of Japan from the final dynasty, which was in 1600 or 1601 or something like this, the first thing which he did is that he closed the Japan to any foreigners. And Japan was closed for 250 years. And from 1600 to 1850, Japan developed an amazing culture. All these uh, amazing things that you know about Japanese culture, most like calligraphy, archery, strange martial arts, the sword, the samurai thing, and so on. The 47 Ronin who committed collective suicide, all these have happened in those centuries when the Japanese culture did not want to rub shoulders with anybody else because it considered them toxic. That's the solution of Manipura. I'm not saying it was an eternal solution because nothing is eternal. Everything is transient. And in 1850, when Japan broke down, it broke down hard because it had stayed isolated from the Western world and the this difference had increased and increased, and increased, and increased. So when finally they broke the wall, there was a lot to go through. And there was a lot, but 250 years, it was like an island. It was, it's literally an island, Japan, but it was like an oasis. It was like a separate realm with its own rules. In the same way, the Jews of Moses had this Manipura thing. You lock yourself in your society, and nobody can get in, nobody can get out. But Jesus is coming with a heart, and he says, my disciples will go to Rome, and Rome is a hodgepodge, a hodgepodge, a mixture of a hundred nations and cultures and, uh, and so on, and all of them will be swept away by Christianity. All, away will, all of them will be conquered, Precisely because there is something more than this Manipuristic fear. There is something which is a sort of a total trust in Anahata. Total embracing and loving and taking in. And, but that's Jesus. Jesus gave that power. Remember, human beings, they usually oscillate between Svadhisthana and Manipura. 
part of the human beings are svadistanistic jellyfish and part are manipuristic with the percentage differing like in Japan or in Israel or in Tibet there will be more manipuristic people percentually in the population no and less vadistana and in some countries like I don't know even what example to give I don't want to give any example there will be lots of vadistanistic people and very few manipuristic people now and then but anahata is already two levels above and thus only Jesus dares to attack a bridge that is too far Jesus says forget about all this manipuristic religion let's go directly to the heart let's go to the religion of course you can say what about vishuddha but well, you know Jesus is realistic he knows that we live in kali yuga on a planet where people are a little bit like worms so he will not be crazy to propose a religion on vishuddha or on ajna or you know it's like uh, that's only for abhinava gupta and a few such people you know even the catholic church did not manage to stay on anahata and after a thousand years of christianity it became more and more manipuristic more and more drastic and more and more so it's like jesus knows what humanity is made of because he has the body of a human being he knows what a human being is like so of course he does not want to ask them for absurd things but he says i think you can do anahata i think you can join me on anahata i think we can do and uh, history has proven that he was right he was right people you know i i see i'm talking to many people who pretend they are christian and so on they don't really understand jesus and they can't do what jesus told them to do you know like turn the other cheek and that kind of people say yeah yeah it's beautiful but i can't i can't i can't do that no but they still love jesus and venerate him i have seen people doing strictly what jesus told them not to do but in their hearts they still know that jesus is the baba that jesus is the boss and they feel guilty they say i don't have the exalted state of spirit to fully do what jesus said i'm sorry i cannot but they try and in the heart of their hearts they know that jesus is like the zenith of spirituality for them and that's why jesus was not impractical like out of reality con- disconnected with reality he knew that people in their hearts will love to see this to have this like the most holy ideal of their hearts and therefore jesus is trying to give it to them so jesus suggested something stronger than the japanese shogunate and stronger than the law of moses jesus tried to give to people a sort of way he says if you really go in anahata and do things the way i told you then you don't need the 825 rules to be kadosh all this kadosh obsession which was the hundreds of rules that the jews were supposed to apply every day to stay clean to be with god he said even that is not necessary and his life was an example he was not observing the sabbath day they were not washing the hands which was a ritual injunction they were taking food from the temples which was offered to god or something they were doing a lot of uh, questionable things 
And Jesus said, you know, when they said, why don't you observe the Sabbath? And he said, because I am the Lord of the Sabbath. You know, it's like the Sabbath does not exist for me. Are you kidding me? You know, and I, I created the Sabbath and now you want me to be tied up by the Sabbath, which I myself created as God. No, are you kidding me? You know, it's like it's, I am above the Sabbath. So in this way, Jesus is giving something very big, very light. That's why I say to all of you, you can have a spirituality on Manipura, which is like the Japanese thing, like the Theravada Buddhism, you know. A lot of things start from Manipura, discipline, this, that, you know. Try, if you want, try for one week. The monks, the Buddhist monks, they have a rule, you know, which most of them break, but many of them do hold. You are not supposed to eat any solid food after 12 o'clock noon. You wake up at 6 o'clock and you have a breakfast and then you have a lunch before 12 o'clock. And after 12 o'clock, today because of 7-Eleven and this, they cheat. Because in the time of the Buddha, there was no milk with cocoa and with sugar. You know, chocolate milk or something like this in a 7-Eleven. If you didn't eat, not to eat solid food, what liquid food existed a thousand years ago or two thousand years ago when there were no refrigerators, when there were no conservants, where there was no food industry and this. It, when you said you eat no solid food, it meant you could drink some tea or something. That was the most you could do. Maybe some tea with a bit of sugarcane juice in it or something, but not really food. No? Any one of you wants to try how this goes, why don't you try it for one week? For one week, you don't eat any solid food and you don't cheat with 7-Eleven shit. You don't eat after 12.00. Until next morning, until you wake up from the sleep. You will get exasperated in three days. You'll start walking on the walls of your room like the guys with the motorcycles in the fairs, you know. You'll like... You'll drive like this, you know. You'll go nuts. And then you'll see you need a lot of Manipura. You need a lot of willpower. You need to be really a mean guy to do that, you know, to simply say, no, I said, I promised to Swamiji, I'm doing it for a week. I will do it for a week. What the heck? You know, that this is Manipura. And this Manipura applied in religion is what protects us from falling out with the goim. You know, it, it is the thing which keeps structure. It's like I keep a spine. My guru told me, do this, don't do this. You know, like, let's take a simple rule, being vegetarian. You know, maybe being vegetarian is not the healthy diet in the world. I have seen that the people who live most on the planet Earth are the women from Okinawa. They have the longest life expectation on Earth. And if you study the diet of the women in Okinawa, they eat sometimes raw fish and raw seafood. <coughs> Fruits, whatever you call them. No, So, I can accept that a vegetarian diet with some seafood might have even more vitamins and B12 and omega-3s and this. No, but vegetarianism was not a diet for health. It was a diet to stay away from the non-believers, to be pure. It was a diet for Brahmins. It was a diet to not pollute yourself. It had a spiritual purpose besides a hygienical purpose. Yes, a vegetarian diet will be more healthy than a meat-eating diet in general. But it's not necessarily the most healthy diet. I'm doing vegetarianism 
not because I want to be a healthy animal. Health is not the first of my priorities. My first priority is to be with God. And if my guru told me, if you want to be with God, I give you this vow. Thou shall not eat meat, thou shall not shed blood. You have to be vegetarian. Hey, this is like the laws of Moses, you know. It's like I don't care if it's scientifically, it's a sort of a rule which places me in an environment. This is Manipura. Manipura in spirituality gives us a structure. I have a mantra which I'm not going to tell you. Because that mantra is very secret and it's only for very special people. That's the sort of thing which creates a cord, a spine, a verticality, a structure. No? And everything. You know, it's like there are levels in yoga. Why can't you get all the levels? Why don't I publish a book as thick as this and you have everything and leave me alone? No? But then it's tohu vabohu, as the Jews call it. It's the outer darkness. It's chaos. It's not the order, the spine. Above this, Jesus comes and says, there is a time where if you go to Anahata, you can supersede this. Then the rules don't matter. For example, the fathers of the desert, they had an incredibly stiff rule. Their life was extremely ascetic and extremely disciplined. And yet, the fathers of the desert, most of them practiced the following discipline. They lived alone. They hardly saw one human being every three months or six months because they were isolated in the desert. And suddenly a visitor, which is usually somebody looking for the light, somebody who has heard that there is a very advanced old man living there, somebody walks and walks through the desert for ten days and finds that old man. And he comes, or even women, there are women's monasteries as well. And he comes and says, I came long way to visit you. Maybe you have some inspiring words for me and so on. And then the first thing which the old man will do will say, uh, you must be hot, here is some water because it's the desert, you must be thirsty, and you have walked a lot, here is some food. And people then ask, what's happening if such a visitor comes to you in the day when you are fasting? Like you have a tapas. Today it's Friday and I'm fasting. Yes, what the answer was. If somebody comes to you in the day when you are fasting, you eat with them. And you blame yourself. I somehow, things were arranged in such a way that I had to break my fast. But breaking your fast was from the heart as an act of humbleness and contrition, while holding your fast was an act of proudness of pride, you know, that, hey, uh, yes, you can eat, but uh, sorry, it's my fasting day. Then I'm showing off. I'm fasting and I, you know, I have to humble myself and I have to destroy my own fast. And then I said, man, I had such a great fasting day. Yeah, sure. Tomorrow when this guy is gone, you can do three days. But now because of love, you have to give up even your tapas. Love is stronger than the tapas, which is inconceivable if you take tapas at its base definition. But Jesus trusts the heart so much that he says, hey, you don't need to isolate yourself from the rest of the world. Go and conquer the world with your heart. If you love and everybody can see your heart, 
they will come to you and they will want to be like you. And it's true. In the beginning, the momentum of these Christian fanatics, the apostles and the others, it was so big that although the Roman Empire killed them, tortured them, martyrized them, tens of thousands of people, people converted to Christianity still. Although it was the most persecuted religion they had ever seen. And they still converted. Because this path of the heart, everybody can feel that, yeah, I have a discipline. I have a, my guru Geranda told me build a hut of two meters by two meters, plaster it with some cow dung, and there you do Paschimottanasana, and there you do your Vajroli Mudra, and there you do, it's like, sure, that works, it's the discipline. But Jesus is bringing something additional, and even in Kashmir, the Utpaladeva and other Kashmirian poets, they say, if you do asceticism but have no love, you will not find Shiva. Shiva is not, you know, Shiva, people say, but Shiva is an ascetic, an ascetic. He's doing ascetic. And they say, he's just cheating you. He's just fooling. He's just fucking with your mind. He is ascetic, but not outside of love. With love. In love at the same time. And that's why here this question and this paragraph is very important in many ways. Because this man is living in this tough law of Moses, and Jesus now speaks freely about your neighbor and so on. And uh, Jesus is this guy says, but who is my neighbor? Why don't you say my brother Jew, other Jews or something, you know? Inside, we, we, the collective here, we, the Agama family, you know, we, like it's about us. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem. It's a bit of a long winding story. Uh, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's like 60 kilometers away or less a bit. When he fell into the hands of robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, those are Jewish families. When he came to the place and saw him passed by on the other side of the road, like, like, I don't have time to deal. I see a man there lying naked and with blood on him. What should I do? Stop, call an ambulance. I, they didn't have mobile telephones in those days. You know, it's like, what should you do? It would spoil all your day, all your program. You have something to do. Suddenly, and they said, okay, somebody will take care. It's not me. Maybe, you know, I don't know who this guy is. And then, you know, maybe he's drunk, maybe he's on some drugs. Maybe if I approach him, he will start beating me. You know, it's like, if it's not a nice circumstance, forget about it. But a Samaritan, who is a Gentile, he was not a Jew. So one of these people believing in all sorts of shamanistic cultures of the Middle East. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Apparently oil and wine were medicine in those days. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Like, see, a person... A man who loved people, simply. doesn't matter what religion you are. Somebody who really cared, you know, like you cannot go on the street and see somebody like this and not care. 
No, not care because you are too busy and something like this. Now concludes Jesus. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Because he told this man said, remember, what should I do to have eternal life? And he said, what does the law say? Love God with all your might, with all your soul, with this and this, and love your neighbor. And the man said, I don't have a problem with the first one. Like he didn't have any question to ask. I understand what it means to love God. At least as a principle, as a matter of principle, even if I don't apply it every day, every minute. But what about the neighbor? This is, you know, we live in a difficult world. Who is my neighbor? And then Jesus told him clearly what it means. No, it's common sense. Stop the bullshit of all these <coughs> religious regulations. Come to the Jivatman, come to the self, and see it's there from the heart. <coughs> A Samaritan who didn't know much, he knew he was spontaneously there. It just takes common sense and humanity. And... Then he says, which one is the neighbor? And the guy was crushed under the evidence. And he said, the one who actually helped him. And then Jesus says, that's what you have to do. So keep on loving God, because that thing you say, you have no problem. But also treat everybody as your brother. And be truly a neighbor. Be truly a brother. Not just live by some stupid religious rules. That those people are not my people. <coughs> and all that. Ramakrishna was not a rich person and at some point he was sponsored all his life and at some point he gets a sponsorship and to go on a pilgrimage to Devi or something in Jammu to some place far from Calcutta and uh, it's a well-known thing that the Hindu people love pilgrimages why stay home and toil your fields when you can walk six months to Devi and have a lot of interesting experiences and be a total hippie in the air and sleep here and there and so on. No, it's like they like this vata, dosha type of air element things. So, while there are people who don't like to move anywhere, but they do. And Ramakrishna goes with his nephew, he's got money, he's leaving. And... Uh, not even 20 kilometers north of Calcutta, they stop in a stopping point, which was like a sort of an oasis, and there they see other pilgrims coming like crossways, you know, going to another, from another place to another place, and those pilgrims were had finished their money, and they were like beggars. They were begging for some food, they were hungry. And then Ramakrishna tells to his nephew, <coughs> buy food to all these people. But he says, that's all the money we have, you know, like that's money for us too, to make a pilgrimage of three months. And Ramakrishna says, no, it doesn't matter. Buy them food now, all of it. And he, then he turns back to Calcutta. Although he loved and he was an Aquarian, you know. He probably loved to walk around and to have diversity and so on. He ruined it in 20 kilometers because he saw hungry people. He just gave, you know. Forget about the rules. Forget about the plans. Ramakrishna could not tolerate to see people in such a miserable condition. That's exactly what Jesus says here. Love your neighbor is a common sense thing. It's in your heart. 
it's everybody knows what it means. So when he takes this guy and says, look, who is the real neighbor here? He knows, you know, there is no need of a PhD in philosophy or theology to know which one of them was doing the right thing. So that is the parable which of the Samaritan, you know, in which Jesus tells him if he's a Samaritan, he can be closer to God than the other two who pretended they were part of a religious community, but they were not doing the right things. And because we still have a little bit of time, I will move to the next of the stories. The next of the stories is very, very meaningful from a yogic standpoint. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, remember it's the end times, he is going to Jerusalem, if you remember. He even announced that in Jerusalem he is going to be persecuted and probably killed. So now it's the last week before he gets to Jerusalem. It's a day or two before Jerusalem, because this house which is mentioned here is where the story of Lazarus happens. And it's just near Jerusalem. It's known to be like 10 kilometers, 20 kilometers out of Jerusalem. Of course, uh, church historians could tell you exactly where it is as a village and so on. I'm not interested in such details. I want to see the psychology and the practice of it. So Jesus and his disciples came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. Like Jesus was living on people's generosity. No, they opened their houses. They gave him food. They gave him house. No, he was relying on people from the heart like this. She, this Martha, she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. There are several Marys. Mary, Miriam, whatever the original name was. Mira, Miriam, whatever, was a famous name. The mother of Jesus is called Mary. Mary Magdalene is called Mary. Mary and Martha, two sisters, one of them is called Mary. So there are at least three Marys in this story mentioned, if not more. So this is one of the three Marys which is mentioned around Jesus in the company of Jesus. So she sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work in the kitchen by myself? Tell her to help me. You know, it's like, as we say in the language of Agama, there is some karma yoga to be done. Marta, Marta, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things. But only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Which means what you do might be taken away from you. But if you have the treasure of initiation, this woman was sucking from Jesus directly the divinity, the presence. That This was her guru talking to her. Then... Jesus said, so this is an eternal problem that we have in yoga. 
Because even in yoga, we say, some people say, yeah, these people came and talked to you, and somebody had to stand up and film the whole thing. Or somebody had to go and do the accounting, because tomorrow the police is coming and asking for the accounts, or whatever, you know. I'm just saying, no, and there is work to be done. This is what in a yoga environment we call karma yoga. And that you know, you all know very well, that in a yogic environment like this, there are some people who like to do karma yoga, and there are some people who don't very much like to do karma yoga. And here is a very, very fine line, a very, very fine distinction. Remember that the world of Jesus was working because people did physical things. Like if Jesus came to a house and Martha said, uh, sure, you can sleep here, there, but I didn't clean, and there is no food in the house. Then you would say, well, why did you receive me as a guest? Well, you know, like, if you do hospitality, hospitality has to be actual hospitality, you know, it's like, or at least partly, at least tell me exactly what you do and we cannot do. So karma yoga is inevitable, no? Like we wanted to do some teaching in the Shiva hall. You don't know, but people have worked two, three days to clean this hall because it hadn't been used for months and months, and it was a mess after the rainy season and after other things, you know. So it's, I am coming and sitting here and teaching and even getting recorded on video, but there is a lot of karma yoga behind this. Even to place this fan at 45 degrees angle so that it points exactly at me, somebody had to work it out. Somebody had, you know, it's not negligent, they had dump a fan there, what the heck, you know. It's, it's been worked. So karma yoga is inevitable. Unless you live alone in the jungle, naked, like Mark of Ethiopia or something like this, you know, karma yoga is inevitable. If there is a community, if there is a thing, and here we have this eternal problem. One of the sisters says, now Jesus is here, I'm listening, I'm absorbing. And the other one says, yeah, but you know, the food has to be warmed up. So we will finish, this Jesus is a talkative hippie, he will talk for three hours, and we'll all be enchanted of how divine he is, and in the end he will stop and say, by the way, aren't you hungry? Isn't everybody hungry? You know, and then I'm going to stand up and say, shucks, I should have done one hour of work in the kitchen to have everything ready for everybody. No, and I can start only now. Sorry, you'll have to resist now. My hospitality is not perfect because, you know, and therefore, basically what she says here is that one of the two sisters has to sacrifice herself and not be in the room. She's in the kitchen and said, Jesus, Speak louder, I cannot hear from the kitchen. I also want to hear. You are in my house, I gave you hospitality, you know. And my sister is taking all the benefits, the bitch. And I'm working and sweating in the kitchen, you know. It's like, what justice is this? One is doing meditation with Abhinava Gupta, and one is cooking in the kitchen. And Jesus, you know, and she's worried. She's fretting, she's stressed out. First thing which Jesus says, says, Martha, Martha, you are worried about a lot of things. Like, there is no santosha. There is no surrender, you know. It's like you are worried. Which in a certain way you can say, but isn't that... It's exactly like the, para, the paradox which many people see in India. 
especially in the old days. It still happens today a lot. No, Many people, when they go to India, if they look a little bit deeper, they say, I don't know how the fuck that country is functioning. Because everybody has no plans and is totally chaotic, and everything is done in the last minute and postponed and done approximately. You should be afraid to fly with Air India, because they probably put adhesive tape to glue their airplanes when they break. You know, it's like... There's a total chaos, you know, and there's like things don't come in time. How can you have a train linked to a bus, linked to when none of them is in good time and so on? You know, you go to a village somewhere in Manali or someplace, there is, they say, well, if the bus is not coming today, it means it broke somewhere on the way. It will come tomorrow. Another one will come tomorrow. You know, like how can you live like that? See, Jesus is like that. He says, it doesn't matter. Why do you worry? You are going to die anyway. You know, it's like, what's the big problem? You live in a illusory world anyway. Why are you fretting so much that if the bus should come today? Okay, it will come tomorrow. You know, it's like, what's the big deal? Okay, sera, sera. You know, but you say, yeah, but if the bus is not coming today, my visa expires today and tomorrow I will be left without a visa. And then the police can take me and throw me in prison. And Jesus says, even then you should smile. Okay, sera, sera. Surrender. Maybe Shiva wants you to go to prison because you have to learn a lesson by going to prison. You know, so it's like you do what you can do, but you cannot do more than what you can do. That's all. So why worry about it? Go with confidence. Walk with confidence on the path of God. So first of all, he's telling her, don't worry so much. Then she says, then it's not going to be an Israeli meal. It's going to be an India meal, you know. It's going to be something chaotic done in the last minute. You know, I wanted to treat you really well. Which Jesus says, yes and no. You can see clearly that Jesus praises Mary more. Because he says, Mary has made the right choice. Out of you too, basically he says, you Martha, you should have said, fuck the kitchen. And you should have stayed here with me and listened. There are many people who tell me, Swamiji, uh, I could not come to the Q&A or to this because I had to do accounting. Nothing is more important than the meeting with your guru. Mary abandons the kitchen and comes and stays there. Karma yoga, if sometimes there will be some situations where the guru himself will give you a blessing and say, come on, do that. But then it comes from Krishna. You know, it comes from the mouth of the guru. But otherwise, if the guru is neutral and doesn't say anything, karma yoga is not done during the spiritual activities. Now we have class. Ah, you know, I couldn't come to the yoga class today because I was cleaning the Shiva hall. It's not a valid excuse for Jesus and it's a, not a valid excuse for Krishna as well. If Krishna told you, today you don't do the yoga class and you go and clean the Shiva hall, that's valid. If the Guru gives the blessing, do this because I take it upon myself. It's upon my authority that you can do this. It's fine. But otherwise, it's not fine because you have to choose the highest spiritual priority. And the highest spiritual priority was not the kitchen. 
Jesus said, I would not suffer if you told me I stayed there for three hours and my jaw dropped and I listened to this and I'm kind of completely engrossed in this and I didn't warm up the food. Sorry, I apologize, abjectly, you know. I have not been a good host. Jesus would have laughed from his heart and have said it doesn't matter. You know, your heart is what matters. You know, yeah, we can eat, you know. Maybe Jesus would have said, I can come to the kitchen and help you warm the food, you know. We can have some fun. That's not the problem. Therefore, here is this thing, the relationship between karma yoga and the other forms of practical yoga. Karma yoga has to be done, and especially if there is an injunction. No, like people say, we are going to teach this class, this class, this class. And then I'm telling them, okay, the consecration is made. Teach. Yeah, this is karma yoga, which is blessed. But otherwise, in other ways, you always have to make a choice of priorities. Remember that Jesus here says, Mary has chosen the good part. The good part is go there with Jesus and absorb his words. It's a unique moment. This man preached for three years. There has been a number of several thousand people who actually saw him and heard him. They were there with him. What a blessing. To have the blessing to have been with Jesus and then you go to the kitchen because there is some karma yoga to be done. It's common sense. Jesus said, no, no. Show your priorities. Make clear priorities. You know, the first priority is the hunger of your soul, is the thirst of your soul. No? I'm telling to people come here and, you know, they have got the thing that if you are present in a yoga class, 75% of a course, you can promote to the next level. And out of eight classes, that means you can you have to join six in a month. And they do that. You know, the teaching department and the registration, they tell me, this person came six times out of it, this person came six times out of eight. And in my mind, I'm going like, what the fuck are they doing in Thailand? It's far, far away. You came so many thousands of kilometers to shirk a couple of classes, the maximum that you could, like to push the envelope to the maximum, then it means you don't love the yoga classes. Because you never shirk your lunch, or your dinner, or that you don't shirk too much. Except people that are fasting, yeah? But except that, you don't shirk. No, if I'm testing you in this week, how many times did you not eat? Not really. How many times did you not come to yoga? Uh, I, you know, I had a free class this day or that day or something. That's why I am saying this for you to understand that here is a very powerful teaching on values, on va what is most valuable. This interaction with Jesus was creme de la creme. It was top of the top. You could not get better than that. And then Jesus says, you want me to take one of my disciples and say, go to the kitchen and help that girl to warm up the food. But Jesus had multiplied fishes and bread, you know. It's like if there would have been no food, maybe Jesus would have done third time. He would have again prepared some fishes and bread from heaven, you know. It's like that was not important. Like it was a very beautiful gesture that Martha wanted 
to help. That's, there's nothing wrong with that and that she wanted to do as a devotional thing. But when putting things in priority, first priority was the direct transmission. No? That's why she was there. How many times did Jesus stay in that house? Probably this time, probably a couple of times, you know? And therefore, you don't miss such an opportunity by saying the food, I have to finish the food in the kitchen. We can simply apologize and say, sorry, you must have a bad karma with food, because every time when you go into a house, people prefer not to cook, but they prefer to listen to you. That's your curse, that you are too charming, too charismatic, too divine, and people, instead of cooking for you, they listen to you. you know? And if you want food, make some fishes, you know. Bring some more fishes and bread, you know, like that's Or let's all go to the kitchen and cook it together, and then you can preach in the kitchen, so we can all hear, you know, you continue your sermon in the kitchen. Like, there would have been a way. It's a very important thing. There is a lot of karma yoga that we can do in this world, but we must not lose out of sight our practice, what we do. I have had yoga schools and centers for many, many years. Almost everywhere where I have been in this world, I created yoga centers and schools and so on. And believe me, it's a lot of karma yoga. Nowadays, I personally am not doing so much karma yoga, except satsangs and teachings and a few other things, you know. I'm not perhaps doing so much as I used to do, but there was a time when I was doing the Alpha and the Omega. I was doing everything from morning till evening. It was a one-man show. And I know what it means to do these things from morning till evening. But there were times when I noticed that if I did too much karma yoga, and if I neglected my personal practice, which is my meeting with Shiva, you know, my communion, me being with the master, then it was not okay. I was not, I was choosing like Marta. I was making the lesser choice. Still a good choice. It's a good choice to do karma yoga anyway. But I was doing the lesser choice. And um, I had to focus on the priorities. I remember we had a meeting with one of the very famous karma yoga persons in Agama for many, many years. And then she said at some point she dawned, the light dawned on her. And she said, how comes that people who have come to Agama after me, they have got bigger initiations and bigger spiritual results than I did. And I told her, how much karma yoga have you done? How much karma yoga have they done? How much daily practice have you done? How much daily practice have they done? You know? Like, karma yoga is fine. And it can divinize the human being. But it has to be done not to the detriment of the main spiritual activities. Meeting with the divine consciousness, like in a yoga class, in a satsang, in other such things, that's the first priority. No? Then all the rest is subordinated to that. And that is why here Jesus is giving a fundamental teaching which is very, very important to clarify the relationship between karma yoga and all the other forms of spiritual practice and communion that 
a human being can have. I would say, I've spoken an hour and a half, I think it's enough. We started earlier, we finished earlier. It is enough for tonight. If uh, always the satsangs, I don't have Q&A associated with them, but the Q&A can be in the Q&A sessions on Tuesdays or any other times when you catch me in some conference or something and you can address questions. Therefore, if you always you remain with questions or other things, inspiration after these things, uh, write it down and your questions are welcome at another time. Also, you are very invited to speak with your teachers or with the people from the registration to suggest for them a theme for a satsang. I don't need to do the Gospel of Luke every week, every week, every week. Especially I used to do in the beginning of every season in January. I used oil to start every year with what is Tantric Yoga, what is Agama Yoga, to explain a little bit some things about the evolution, a little part from the metaphysical workshop, and so on to inspire people in the beginning of every season. I suppose those uh, satsangs are already on YouTube or wherever they are being uploaded. So that's why I'm pretty free to do whatever I do. If I don't receive any special requests, I will continue with the Gospel of Luke until I finish it. Because as you can see, it's a wonderful spiritual atmosphere which comes from Jesus. It's the presence of Jesus by talking about his words, mentality, action, presence and all that. But at the same time, we are all free to interrupt from time to time and to investigate other things. If time permits it and so on, one day I will be done with the Gospel of Luke. If that's happening in this season or in the next or whenever, you know, as long as there is time, there is the possibility to deal with it. With this, we have finished for now. Thank you all for joining. And next week, we will continue. Either with this subject or another, I will let you know.